You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Fashion designer Rebecca Minkoff joins Washington Post Live to discuss the post-pandemic challenges facing the fashion industry in her new book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, senior critic at large. Like so many designers in the fashion industry, Rebecca Menkoff faced some of her toughest challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now the industry is taking some of its strongest steps forward as the world attempts to return to normal. Joining me this morning is Rebecca Menkoff. Thank you so much for ta- having uh, spending this time with me. Thank you for having me. I'm incredibly honored and happy to be here with you. Well, I absolutely want to talk about your new book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the industry and its recovery and what changes perhaps uh, the industry has undergone. And I know in in the beginning of the the pandemic, I I think you said that something like 70% of your business sort of evaporated almost overnight. Um, Can you talk about, I mean, your your concerns in that moment about layoffs and the possibility of even having to close your business? Yes, Um, it was March 22nd. We had started receiving cancellations around the 16th. And the cancellations were so great that essentially uh, overnight, 70% of our business, which was primarily wholesale, evaporated. And my brother, who's the CEO and my co-founder, and I had some very long, very late night talks about what do we do and how do we survive? And it took uh, the unfortunate laying off of some of the team members related to the wholesale business. It took pay cuts across the entire company. And it took us looking at what do we do every day that keeps the lights on? It's our own website. And that's all we had. And we essentially called it day trading. What did we do each day that would let us live another day? Um, And so we had a rally call for the people that we were able to hold on to. And we said, listen, we are going to give this everything we got. And we are, if we go down, it's going to be down with a fight. And so it was important that the team, you know, really banded behind, you know, us surviving and everyone did. And my brother said, Rebecca, you're now our chief content creator, our chief influencer, our our chief spokesperson. You're the one-stop shop as the mouthpiece for this brand. And that's what we had to do. And we just had to get innovative in ways to reach our customer, ways to entertain her, take her mind off things and give her a reason to buy a bag, even though she was going nowhere. Now, I mean, there are so many different uh, aspects of the fashion business that, um, you know, are common ground with other industries. But when you guys were out of the office and and working from home or working from wherever you might have been, what are the specific challenges in fashion that make remote working especially difficult? So my design team and I really tried to work remotely and design bags and clothing and shoes over Zoom. That does not work. I think most designers can identify that you need to touch and feel product. You need to look at a sample together. And so very early on, 
you know, when my team felt like about two months in, this was impossible. They went into the office. We took all precautions. Uh, everyone was socially distanced and masked. Um, and we just wanted to make sure everyone felt safe. So we paid for their transportation uh, to and from the office up until actually this month. We did that for all of our staff going in. But, you know, most functions could work remote finance, logistics. But that design and merchandising team, they had to be in the office with product and they were happy to. You know, my, my head designer was like, I was excited to leave my house every day and go to the office. It gave me some sense of normalcy. Um, and so, you know, all businesses are different and all businesses have different comfort levels. But that for my team was what they actually felt more comfortable doing. And one of the other things that the industry has talked a lot about has been uh, that pivot to, to e-commerce. And I, I'm curious to know, like, how how challenging is that? I mean, people make it sound like, oh, OK, well, you know, we can't, uh, you know, ship merchandise to stores. We'll just put it all online. But that's an that's a huge hurdle to clear, isn't it? Yes, uh, we had everything ready to ship to our wholesale partners the day those orders were canceled. So it wasn't a problem of everything stuck overseas and we can't get it here. It was actually in our warehouse ready to go. And we had this internal term called, we have to melt that pile. And you're right, Robin, you can't just put it all online. Um, and so we had to get very creative. Um, we did a ton of live streaming, a lot of it with some uh, incredible live streamers in China and they would come in and help us, as I say, melt that pile. Um, and then we were able to, to actually hold some of it for when we knew wholesale is gonna open up. It might not have the appetite that it had before, but let's hold on to the goods that are further a couple seasons out so that just in case they open up, they have stuff. And a lot of these wholesale companies, e-com business did quite well. So we were seeing some small reorders throughout the pandemic of you know those online brands. And then for us, it was just about how do we be creative with the inventory? We now have a lot of it. Um, and how do we learn from our mistakes? And as the seasons went on, really cut inventory, not make as many SKUs. You know, so we got incredibly lean from a SKU count perspective and what we offered, but also in an inventory perspective. So we actually exited the pandemic incredibly light. And now we're in a situation where we're getting reorders that we can't fulfill, which is a much a much more comfortable position than how we started out a year ago with a, a very large mountain to dissolve. I'm curious in terms of those those wholesale accounts. I mean, how are they all coming back? I mean, how many? It seemed like so many. Uh, we were hearing so many stories about bankruptcies and uh, you know the, the cutting back, the closing of stores. Where does the retail part of the business stand right now for you? So for us, we're seeing um, the beginnings of tender shoots of, you know, a lot of these wholesalers coming back. So we are getting reorders. Again, you cannot compare the increases to 2019 as far mm -hmm. as sales, but I think we're starting to see the numbers turn around. And yes, you know, obviously very public bankruptcies and, uh, you know, they've, they've, some of these companies have come back from that and some haven't. I think the hardest hit were probably our specialty stores um, mm -hmm. and a lot of them are still fighting it out. And so, you know, we are encouraging people to get back out to those specialty stores, you know, that don't have the big credit. You know, they are these mom and pop shops and that's all they have. And so really getting shoppers to celebrate independent small businesses across 
across the world. And I have a whole directory for that so that people can make sure that they're supporting them. Yeah, I mean, it really felt like people were rallying behind, um, you know, their, their neighborhood restaurants. Um, and, and that was a wonderful thing to see. But it also felt like the fashion industry was a little bit um, less embraced um, by the public at large. I mean, do you think some of that is just sort of the relationship that the industry has with its customer or uh, the way that the industry has consolidated over the years and people think of it as just a world of, you know, giant corporately owned stores? I think that food is something that people need to survive, you know, and I think that you probably had a lot of people experience getting really sick of their own cooking. I know that I did. And I think, okay, good. It's a, it's a little respite if I get to have something that someone else made, but clothing, you know, when you're holding on by a thread can feel like an extra expense that you can cut out. And I think, you know, when you look at what did work during the pandemic, it was loungewear, it was sweatsuit sets. You know, it was our Janine sweatshirt, which we couldn't keep in stock because she wanted to look great on Zoom, but wanted to be comfortable. So I think that if consumers were shopping, they were buying comfort. Um, and anyone who was not making that was kind of left out, not because of a perception, but just because who needs a fancy dress? Who needs a pair of heels? Um, what I will say that was interesting is, you know, we ended the year 10% up over the prior year for our direct to consumer site. And we thought, you know what? She's not buying a bag because she's necessarily wearing it now, but it's that hope factor. It's that I'm going to be going somewhere soon. So let me get my favorite handbag in preparation or sort of a, a token or symbol that things will move up. So I, I do think the industry overall suffered um, in a disproportionate way, but an understandably disproportionate way. One of the, the big conversations early on during the pandemic within the industry was this sense of here's an opportunity for a reset. And there was so much conversation about things that people were going to do differently, producing less merchandise, slowing down the seasonal cycles. I feel a little bit like the end of that story is a bit of a never mind. It feels like the industry is sort of quickly returning to form. I mean, are you feeling like some of those changes uh, that people talked about will stick? Um, I mean, are there things that you learned and did during um, the last year that you feel like, yeah, this was actually a really good idea. I'm going to stick with this. We're the latter. I think we don't want to go back to how it was. We never want to be in a position where we're carrying so much inventory or offering more SKUs than we need, not just for our own sites, but with our wholesale partners. So we've cut back over 50%. So when you look at that much less waste, we've also done incredibly uh, push the boundaries um, with supply chain on eliminating plastic. So by the fall season, 90% of the plastic in our supply chain will be gone. We've also expanded our footprint with what we call RM Green, which is our sustainably made products that exist in extended sizing. That was something that we had very little time to focus on before the pandemic. And the pandemic you know, really took a look at how can we decrease our footprint, not only with inventory, but sustainably minded. And so to be able to create a garment like I'm wearing today, there's no waste, it's 95% biodegradable, there's no inventory, uh, is a world we're going to be increasingly playing in. Um, so for us, I think 
we learned so much about our customer. We learned so much about our business by only having to grow from our own garden that we never want to lose that mindset. And so as we open ourselves back up to our incredible wholesale partners, it really is with a different view. It's what is best for the brand, not necessarily what is going to get us the biggest bang for the buck. I'm so glad when you when you mentioned sustainable that you you got a bit more specific about what that means, uh, you know, for your company. And and essentially, you're saying that when you focus on sustainability, you're looking at the carbon footprint uh, in the in the production of the specific garment. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So our RM Green Line is specifically through that lens. So carbon footprint, but also when this garment is done, it can actually, you know, be planted essentially, right? Because it actually turns, it's cotton um, and it's printed with earth-friendly chemicals. So you're not going to be harming something by throwing it away. Um, and there's no inventory. There's no waste in the printing process of this garment because it's printed on. And so they can optimize the pattern for very little fabric overages. Um, and then we took another lens and said, okay, you know, as I'm getting all these packages sent to me to open up my bags, to shoot them myself and make all these silly videos to promote our brand, I was like, this plastic has got to go. So we really took an aggressive stance on, you know, FSC certified paper, making sure that wherever plastic or styrofoam could be out, it is, and continuing to push the envelope so that beyond the fall season, we ship you something and you don't have to feel any guilt. So it's definitely a work in progress, but having that time to focus on that experience, you know, as a brand and for my customer was really important this year. So we're looking at it from both ways. And when it comes to uh, the live fashion show, um, I mean, you were one of the few designers who, who was able to actually do a live show uh, last year in New York. I mean, it, so, it seems that that is something that is very important to you that can't really be replaced uh, in a digital format. Um, I mean, what is your sense of the role of the live show going forward? So I think that I wanted to do two things. I wanted to show that in the wake of so much fear and unease and everyone stay home and don't do anything, Businesses in America need to survive. You know, the fashion industry employs so many people and freelancers, especially around fashion weeks. And I didn't feel it was right to just say, we're going to give up. I felt it was my right to say, we can do this safely. We can do this responsibly. And we will not be a super spreader event, which we weren't. And show people that you could, you could get back to life and living in a very safe and ethical way. Um, the other reason is, I think that for us, because all of our collections and seasons are for sale, when we do our show, you need that experience that the customer gets excited about and everyone's on their phones and has nothing to do. And so if we are that brand that's out there in front of her showing her a dress or a top or a piece of jewelry that she could have at that very moment, it could arrive to her house tomorrow. I think it was key that that's how we presented ourselves. Um, and so we actually did one in, the, in February and one in September. Obviously, a lot less people attended, but the mm -hmm. chatter and attention and sales that we got from these events was incredibly important for our brand. And we're going to be continuing with live events in different formats. Something very exciting is brewing for September. Um, mm -hmm. But again, for my brand, it, it's about that experience that people get to have. What well, you have used the word fearless. 
and fear multiple times, which is a perfect lead-in to a, a little chat about the book. And first of all, I'm wondering why you would take on the the work of writing a book when so much else was going on. So why why did you take this on? So to be fair, um, I had signed, I got the book deal in December of 19. In January, I basically had the structure, the format, you know, a basic sort of, this is how it's going to go. And I had some time to write it before March. And then obviously March hit. And um, I had to turn that book in in October. And I wasn't going to ask for an extension because that's not who I am. Um, but what was really interesting is as I'm sitting there watching my business shear off a cliff and holding on to these two ropes to keep it from fully tumbling over, I'm going back into memory lane and going, what did I do to build this company? What did my brother do to help, you know, make our company thrive and survive? And all those things that I did over the last 15 years, I had to do them all again. And so not that I would ever say it was fortuitous because what happened was horrific, not just for myself, but for, you know, anyone living. Um, but to be able to sort of viscerally remember all those little things I did, how scrappy I was, you know, gritty. I was like, okay, we're applying this now in real time so that we can survive. So while it was a lot of pressure to write a book during that time, I think it only helped us get through the pandemic because I could remember the lessons and, and things that I applied that worked the first time. It, there are there are many rules in the book. It's sort of divided, um, you know, by rules. And one of them that I thought was particularly interesting was where you say, "Don't ask for help, but to ask for what you need." Can you? just sort of distinguish between those two things? Because I think we've all been sort of trained that, um, you know, the rule of thumb is to not be afraid to ask for help, but you make a distinction. Yes, and I think you probably get this a lot. Somebody finds your email address and says, Robin, can you just sit down with me for 15 minutes? Can we have coffee? Can you help me? And you're like, no, I can't help you. I don't even know what you want. And so, what I talk about in that chapter is getting so specific. There is anyone out there that you'd want to ask something from has probably answered that question on a live talk like today or a podcast or in a book they wrote. So when you have an opportunity to either be in front of that person, the more specific you can get, the better. If someone says to me, how did you get started? That is a waste of time in terms of you have that two minutes with me, like ask me where to get a bag made, ask me what's the best leather supplier, ask me, you know, which showroom should you be in? Um, and, and, you know, when I first started out and I would go to different events and I brought home business cards, I literally would count them at the end of the night like they were cash because each one was an opportunity where I could ask for help, um, but not help, ask for what I needed. And so I think we have to get over the idea that um, you shouldn't ask for what you need. And I was just direct, hey, I, I need you know, to know where is the best place to get my patterns graded, or I need to know what your next feature is, and, and then I'm gonna go make that item so I can be in your magazine. So the more specific you can get with anyone you need something from, the better. And don't be afraid. Everyone got here because someone else helped them. And um, as long as you know in your head that you're gonna pay it forward, I think don't be afraid to ask. 
Well, you give a great example. Um, I think you were still an intern at the time and you were you needed help because you weren't making very much money and you were living in the very expensive city of New York and you made a decision about what specifically you were going to ask for. Yes, so I was making minimum wage, which I think was four twenty five an hour living in an apartment that I had to hide from my roommate because I actually couldn't afford to sleep in the closet that I was given. And I just, you know, I sat down one night with the CEO. She invited me to her house for dinner uh, over the holidays and I couldn't afford a plane ticket home. So I was like, that's the next best thing. And after dinner, I sat her down and I said, I would like you to offer me a better paying position and a job and a better title. And here's what I've done to earn it. Let me paint that picture for you. And I didn't demand it, but I, I laid out a scenario in which everything I've done that she couldn't refuse. She couldn't deny that I'd added value to the company, that I was a diligent hard worker. And so she said, yes. And, you know, sometimes timing is off. You know, I tell some of my staff, you know, especially through the pandemic, Maybe now is not the time to ask for a raise as much as I want to give it to you, but I hear you. And as soon as we've come through this, yes, of course, you're getting that raise. And so I think, you know, when you are asking for help, also understanding the timing of things or scenarios that might be occurring that are not in your uh, purview are important to consider. Are there lessons um, from the book that you think uh, particularly female entrepreneurs or, uh, you know, women um, in the the business world can take, um, particularly because women have been so hard hit by the pandemic? Yes, I think that women need to begin to think about taking more risk. You know, I meet too many female founders who unfortunately are scared or held back. And in the book, there's a chapter called Sometimes You Win, Sometimes You Learn. And I think that if we can reframe failure as what did I learn? Um, I got to interview the founder of Majuri for my podcast, and she had a tech background. And she said, you know, in technology, there's a failure funnel. If something doesn't work, there's no emotion. You don't crawl into your desk into a shame hole. It's just like, oh, that didn't work. Failure funnel. Next. And so I think that if we can sort of view failure as, okay, I learned something today. Awesome. That goes in my toolbox for how to change and do something different. That's a blessing. And there's going to be failure in our lives. And, and I think the other, the other example that I make, and I get extreme when I make these examples just to paint a better picture, but we have to stick our necks out. You know, human progress is never made by someone being scared. If we look at women's right to vote uh, or rights to our bodies, if you look at what those women have gone through, beaten, jailed, dis you know, disconnected from society, they had to take a risk. So if we want that raise or we want that more equal work-life balance, if that even exists, or we want that promotion, the cavalry is not coming for us. We have to own our destiny and stick our neck out because what we do now not only changes our path for ourselves, but for the women behind this. So I, I encourage women, stick your neck out. Susan Fowler stuck her neck out at Uber. You know, look at the changes that have been made in the industry since then. And so I think that there's so many incredible examples of women who were very scared. It doesn't mean they didn't have fear, but they said, you know what, my neck's going out and it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to make some change. Um, I think now would be a good time to uh, perhaps ask a couple questions from our audience. 
And one of them is from Kathy Long from Holland, Oregon. And uh, I think she has a question that is on the mind of many, many people, which is, will we ever dress up again? Or has style completely gone the way of pajamas and yoga pants? You know, I was one that thought that this sweatpant look would go on forever and only wearing flat shoes. But we uh, put some very light, you know, two and a half inch heels up on our site about a month ago and sold out instantaneously in a few hours. And I was like, okay, she's ready to party. Let's do this. And then we threw up some very easy, you know, forgiving dresses um, with no waistbands just because who wants that right now? And again, experienced great sales from it. So we see that our consumer is ready. She's going to get out there and you can, you know, obviously come home and change into those sweatpants immediately, but she's ready to get back out there. And uh, I'm excited for that because to be honest, I'm ready to, to look a little bit more put together some days. And a second question, uh, which has gotten a little bit of, uh, I think probably social media attention is from Chris Taylor in California. It is on the subject of jeans. What jeans are in style? <laughs> well, I'm seeing a ton of very high-waisted jeans, often paired with crop tops. You're never going to see me wearing that, but I love it if someone can pull that off. Uh, but a much looser fit. I know that there was a whole TikTok debate about are skinny jeans dead. And I just tell women, if you feel great in a skinny jean, you better wear it because it's about what makes us feel amazing. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. If you look and feel good, everyone senses that. So, um, but if you are into trends, you know, again, higher waist with a looser sort of mom jean or um, just sort of a wide leg is what I'm seeing, you know, paired back with platforms or a, a small heel as you begin to figure out how to walk again in those things. And I guess the, my last question is really just um, sort of the big, the big takeaway for the fashion industry, um, but for you in particular as a business owner, after some 15 months of shutdowns and turmoil and just uh, you know, seeing the real stresses that people have been under. I mean, are there uh, lessons, two or three lessons that you have learned over this last year about um, your, your business and what people want from fashion? Yeah, so I think what people want from fashion depends on the designer that they love. You know, if someone wants fantasy, there are designers there to do it. Look at, you know, <clears throat> Christian Siriano makes fantasy, you know, Jason Wu makes these incredible gowns, but he's also diversified his offering. You can buy him on QVC now, which I think was an incredibly brilliant move so that you can get his great wrap sweater and then a dress that you're going to wear to the next inauguration. Um, and so I think my promise to my consumer is, you know, I want to give you something that you're going to feel optimistic, confident, fearless in, that you can pay rent and get your bag um, and look fabulous. And I think that, you know, consumers still want to have that experience, whether it's in-store or that box arrives where you're excited that you've got something. And I don't think that feeling's ever gonna go away. And I think, especially in the short term, you're gonna see it over-index into, I'm going back into a store to touch and feel. I know I did that yesterday and I was like, I haven't shopped in forever. And I, I love that I can try and close in a dressing room and I hated that pre-pandemic. So, you know, I think 
you know, the fantasy doesn't go away because that's what makes this a magical industry to be in. It's going to be harder for those designers. But I think if you're smart, like I, like I mentioned, Jason or Christian, you will find a path through and you will be successful. Well, I'm afraid that is all the time that we have. Uh, my tremendous thanks to you, Rebecca, and thank you so much for bearing with me during that uh, little technical glitch there. And once again, I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large for the Washington Post, and I thank you for joining me today. If you will come back tomorrow, uh, my colleague Jackie Alameni will be interviewing Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota at 9.15 a.m. And Heather Long at 11.30 will be hosting Women in Tech Trailblazers, uh, where she'll be interviewing former TaskRabbit CEO Stacey Brown Philpot, Google CFO Ruth Porat, and former IBM CEO Jenny Rometty. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.